In the grand history of technologies, there are probably no inventions that have been as radical and as life-changing as the telegraph, and yet never as forgotten as the telegraph. The telegraph was humans' first electronic communication. It left off from the printing press and didn't transmit more knowledge. Instead, it transmitted small amounts of information instantaneously. It started what we are all familiar with today, the connection of the world's information, allowing for truly global and instant communication via electronic currents. Today, if we ever think of the telegraph, we see it largely as an invention between the printing press and the internet. But I think its reputation needs to be restored and remembered. So before we get to the telegraph, we should remember why it is largely forgotten. So we should always remember that the telegraph was radical. It helped to unleash a range of later technological developments, largely seen as superior and more relevant to modern life. Yet it all started, in effect, with this electronic communication. The Pandora's box of electrical communication continued with the first wireless telegraph, or as we call it today, the radio. Then came the television, and most importantly of all, the internet. The telegraph's insights may look parochial to us today, but it was revolutionary. The insights were quickly seen and run with. Rather than using pigeons, couriers or postal services, or later the railways to send information, for the first time it could be sent electronically through the increasing exploitation of electricity. The telegraph was the first result of an electrical revolution to hit humanity. The electrical revolution perhaps took another hundred years to really permeate the consumer classes. But the telegraph, like other type 1 inventions before them, was based from a key scientific insight about electricity and the potential for electricity and the speed of electrical signals. This episode, therefore, can be seen as a prequel to the radio episode from a while back and something of a brother to the later future episode on the telephone. You may wonder, based on this introduction, if the telegraph should be higher up, and higher than the telephone. But the telegraph was largely not for ordinary people. 
It was used by railway companies, businesses, armies and rich individuals. The telephone was used by all. The telegraph led to the telephone and also the radio. So if the telegraph was a revolution, why was it so far down? Well, as we all probably know, what the telegraph unleashed was quickly replaced in just a few decades by first wireless telegraphy, then the telephone, and in time, the internet. But the telegraph's role in the middle of the 19th century was huge, but it didn't have the long-lasting impact of, say, a printing press or the internet. Nevertheless, the telegraph was one of those crucial developments in information and communication that would later spur something much larger and much more permanent. The telegraph is almost the forgotten invention, with it being superseded by other technologies. But for a short time, it would have looked like magic. This is its story. The telegraph was developed for a very specific reason in the 1830s. As the railways changed the physical world at speeds never seen before, it was the railways that became the fastest way to get information from one place to another. Before, everything had to go by horse. Now, everything was going by train. And so the question was, could you transfer information quicker than a train? During the 18th century, telegraphs had been proposed. Though it was still a very speculative technology, as the nature of electricity itself was still just being explored. In April 1746, Ab Nolay discharged the shock of electricity through a jar with a number of monks holding iron wires in a 5,400 foot circumference. He basically electrocuted the monks holding the jars, and the contortions of the electrocuted monks was evidence enough of them having received an electric shock. The fact that these shocks all happened simultaneously also proved that electricity travelled too quickly even in this huge circle for the transmission times to be perceptible. Quite quickly, electricity was further experimented with to use this near instantaneous transfer of electricity to transfer information. Sir William Watson, in 1747, of the Royal Society, passed electricity through 9,000 feet of earth and water along the Thames, and then, in a later experiment, through 10,000 feet of wire. In 1748, Benjamin Franklin did the same in Philadelphia. However, the amount of static electricity made these early experiments problematic and too difficult for reliable electronic transmissions. However, there were still attempts to try and make information pass via electricity, by passing the electricity through different wires, with each wire representing one letter of the alphabet. But this system was clumsy and too intricate for the simplicity of electronic operations at the time. Between 1750 and 1800, Developments occurred in the investigations of electricity 
that proved promising for the telegraph. An early battery was created by Luigi Galvani and Alessandro Volta. It could supply a steady and comfortable flow of electricity of modest voltage, which allowed electricity to be studied and analysed like never before. In 1800, Volta presented his findings to the Royal Society in London, and within months larger and more powerful batteries were popping up. For the next few years, experiments and discoveries abounded in the new study of electricity. In 1810, at the University of Copenhagen, Hans Orsted discovered the relationship between electricity and magnetism. And in Paris, André Ampère discovered that a magnetic needle could be deflected. In Barcelona, out of the mainstream of European science of the time, Francisco Salva employed a multi-wire telegraph scheme between Madrid and the royal family's residence of Arunjes. Yet this system wasn't really practical, and his work was as much theoretical as practical. Other attempts quickly popped up around Europe. In 1816, 28-year-old Francis Ronald built what was probably the world's first usable electric telegraph. In his garden in Hammersmith in London, he built two wooden structures 20 feet apart, but with eight miles of cables, it was highly inefficient. But he demonstrated that he could at least send communicable electricity in an instance at least in dry weather. Ronald then built a second line. He dug up a trench and set up an ingenious arrangement, arranging brass dials on a clock to send the signals. It relied on static electricity, so it wasn't really usable over longer distances. But it showed the principles of what an electric telegraph could do, and so we can probably class it as the first real electrical telegraph. Ronald wrote to the Admiralty, offering to demonstrate his device, but the Admiralty were not interested. The Admiralty used a semaphore system for communication, which they thought was good enough. Napoleon had made great use of the semaphore system, but it faced one major flaw. It needed visual communication to work. The Admiralty, of course, knew this. How could they not know that Britain was very overcast? So you might have thought they would look for a way around this. But we've seen throughout this series that the Admiralty can be very slow to take up new technologies. So Ronald gave up on his idea. He took out no patent and turned to meteorology as his profession at the Royal Observatory. He would later have a good career as a bureaucrat in the British scientific world and was later recognised as the father of English telegraphy in 1870, just a year before he died, receiving a knighthood. The 1830s saw two different types of telegraphs experimented with, the needle system and the armature system. The needle system used deflections of small magnetic needles placed at the receiving ends of wire, through which an electrical current was sent to indicate the letters of the alphabet while the armature system, or the mechanical system, 
made use of the passage of an electrical current through an electromagnet. By moving the armature, the signals could be recorded. Baron Powell Schilling, a Russian diplomat, made the first move in this area. His experiments focused on the military and he attempted to provide telegraphic communications between fortified locations to explode mines from a distance. This was demonstrated in 1832 in Berlin, and over the next few years he modified his developments to be able to use only one needle to send messages. But he died before he could make any real start. But his idea of a mechanical system was taken up by William Cook, who described the telegraph as, quote, one of the common applications of electricity, without practical results for half a century, close quotes. Cook wrote a pamphlet setting out his plan for establishing rapid telegraphic communications between the cities of England. His telegraph lines would run alongside the railways now popping up around the country. His aim was to protect telegraph lines using the railway lines that were also popping up. His telegraph lines would run alongside the railways now popping up around the country. His aim was to protect his telegraph lines by enclosing them in the railway lines. And he said the government could be enabled to protect the lines, as the lines in future might be used to transmit vital state information. In November 1836, Cook met the legendary scientist Michael Faraday, who had already been experimenting with electricity. Cook was heartened to learn that Faraday thought his designs were, in principle at least, the right approach. Then, in December 1836, Cook met with a friend who had connections with the Liverpool and Manchester Railway Company, which would prove very useful. Just before the Cook meeting, the railway directors had ordered a pneumatic telegraph or whistle tube to solve the problem of how to signal through the one-way Lime Street Tunnel. When they met Cook in 1837, they were persuaded to fund his experimental technology. The problem of signalling was quite common in the early railways, especially through tunnels, and Cook could argue how much better his idea was over that of a pneumatic tunnel. He convinced them his signalling solution via the electric telegraph was a much better solution than the pneumatic tunnel. The use of signalling on single line tracks was of course to prevent the collision of two trains running on the same line, and so was a fairly important thing. Cook met with musical instrument maker Charles Wheatstone, who agreed to set up a telegraph instrument, almost like a musical instrument, to send the signals. The two started experimenting with how to get their theoretical solution to be turned into a practical one. In May 1837, the two took out a patent. In the meantime, the railroad boom was taking off, with 2,120 miles of railways commissioned, 
So a market was growing all the time. As Cook was developing his ideas, Samuel Morse of the United States was giving his first public exhibition of his telegraph in the United States. Experiments both interrelated and independent began to proliferate across the Western world, with all number of new and different and similar telegraphs being proposed. Despite this, the patent Cook and Wheatstone had originally made stuck, and they would reap the rewards. Soon, more ambitious telegraph lines were already being proposed than the Liverpool to Manchester one. Telegraph lines were proposed between London and Edinburgh, London and Birmingham, but the telegraph still was largely just hype. This was for a very good reason. The first implementation of the telegraph in Britain did take a while to get working properly. When the Lime Street Tunnel Telegraph was first used, the directors were unimpressed with its 60 signals and complications. And so, the London and Birmingham Railway Company looked back at the original plans for a pneumatic system. However, this was not the end of the railway's experiments with electrical telegraphy, but only the start. Sometimes it takes a great man to change history, and Isambard Kingdom Brunel is surely a great man. The greatest British engineer of all time if not the greatest engineer in the world. And he had been working on the Great Western Railway, and was not as concerned with the flaws of the telegraph, but merely interested in the technology. So good was Brunel that there was no real need for a telegraph, as the Great Western Railway had little need for telegraphic signalling, as it was all double-tracked, and no trains would be coming towards each other. A remarkable achievement by itself. But Brunel still set up a meeting between Cook and the Great Western Railway's board. At Brunel's enthusiasm, the board signed off on the idea. In April 1838, Cook and Great Western Railway finalised the deal. An initial 13.5 miles of line would be laid from Paddington to West Drayton. The telegraph line was insulated with cotton and placed underneath the rails where it would work far better. This would become the first telegraph line to be used for fairly long distance communications. The Great Western Railway's telegraph was then extended to Slough and it was a marvel of science, with the telegraph installation itself being able to charge five pence for visitors just to come and look at it. The developments were quickly realised and the potential for communication was demonstrated to all as now trains could be monitored across the line. Great Western Railway and Brunel's work convinced the government of the potential and they started to notice how revolutionary this new communication was proving. A select committee of railway communication commented in 1840 that, quote, Circumstances may arise in which it might be very inconvenient to leave in the hands of a private company or an individual the exclusive means of intelligence which the telegraph affords. It cannot fail to be of paramount importance 
that the government should be furnished with similar means of procuring and transmitting intelligence. Close quotes. Despite the clear advantages and real-world applications of the telegraph, the public still thought of it as a novelty. By the mid-1840s, the telegraph was starting to be used by the aristocracy in the announcing of royal matters. And telegraph networks to send messages were beginning to take shape across Britain, especially around London and the South East. The development of such telegraphs followed the building of most railways, and in part helped to continue the financing of the railroad boom as parts of the Edinburgh to Glasgow line, Manchester and Leeds, and then the Ipswich line were quickly built, all with telegraphs. The dual technologies helped to underline the transformative time Britain was living in. I also just want to take a moment and step back and think about what was going on during this time. Two technologies, one very much of the old industrial world, of steam and iron in the railways, the culmination of 60 years of industrial advancement was happening in Britain, but also a very new type of technology, the start of the second industrial revolution, with the use of electricity in the telegraphs, and it began to have such a profound effect on Britain as two very different types of technologies overlapped each other. This situation it's fairly unique. It would be akin to the computer being developed in the 1920s and continuing to power the consumer electronics boom. So, back to the timeline. And in 1844, a telegraph of 88 miles long, the longest yet built, was started on the Nine Elms to Gosport stations on the London and South Western Railways. By this point, the Admiralty had gotten involved and helped to fund the project. Next was the funding of the Chester to Holyhead telegraph line of 300 miles to connect up Manchester, Birmingham and Liverpool. In 1845, the telegraph started to be used to carry news, allowing for much quicker reporting of facts. The great newspapers of the time, like the Times, had his own channel steamer at the time to get news to and from the continent quickly. But they too started to quickly realise the importance of quicker news, as did many others. By 1846, and the pioneering work on the telegraph was done, and it had proved its usefulness and worth. Essentially, it had become profitable. Meanwhile, in the United States, telegraph lines like railway lines, were beginning to boom. What Britain had done with precision and delicateness, with the density of population, meaning the lines had to be built very precisely, was very different to how it was done in the United States. The US could do things on a grand scale. With work on telegraphs only being started to be built in 1844, two years later, in 1846, 1,100 miles of telegraph lines had already been built in the United States. Both in Britain and the US, the telegraph network, with the exception of the Nine Elms to Gosport line, had been privately financed. 
the governmental world had been too slow to adopt the use of this near instantaneous information. And this is perhaps the most interesting thing about this episode. The nature of the state and private enterprise in how they managed this vitally new important infrastructure. In Europe, the entire network was state-financed and run for military and political reasons. And only unimportant lines were able to be privately financed. This was perhaps reasonable, as even British and American privately financed companies were slow to make profit on these investments, and so governments took over. Most of the telegraph money of the 1840s came from railway companies wanting to build telegraph lines to communicate train locations. The costs for sending messages via telegram were far too expensive for the regular person. But slow and gradual improvements across time and a gradual adoption by some professional bodies and governments meant that in 1849, the primary telegraph company in Britain, the Electric Telegraph Company, could turn a profit and issue a dividend. It was the nature of these dividends, which grew and grew, which would be the longest lasting legacy of the telegraph companies, and ultimately led to their demise. From this initial dividend in 1849, business in the telegraph companies very quickly boomed. These profits meant there became instant competition, with the arrival of another telegraph company to starting to challenge the electric telegraph company's monopoly. Yet, if we're looking for scale, we look to the United States. It led the way in private investment, with 12,000 miles of telegraph lines popping up, run by 20 companies. The year 1851 was a vital one in the history of the telegraph, with the Great Exhibition boosting demand, but it also highlighted that the telegraph was now a perfectly working technology. 1851 saw another 970 miles of telegraph lines built in Britain, contracted to be built in Britain, and the first international submarine cable between Dover and Calais. The stock market could now be monitored in Paris from London in the same day. Later, in 1851, an English and Irish line was funded and began to be constructed, then England to the Netherlands. Quickly, network effects soon kicked in, and London began to be connected to all the major cities in Europe via telegraph. Between 1851 and 1855, the Electric Telegraph Company had a system growing from 2,122 miles to 5,228 miles of telegraph lines. Increasing competition drove down prices allowing for more and more telegraph messages to be sent. Soon, grander ideas of connecting the farthest places away, like China, Australia, or Hindustan, India, began to be investigated. Increased competition in the 1860s pushed the productivity and the effectiveness of telegraphs, as longer messages travelling over further distances became ever cheaper. In 1858, a series of innovations by Charles Wheatstone 
with the ABC Telegraph was developed, which merely required a knob being pressed opposite the letter to form a word. This telegraph system could be used very easily in private, and 20 to 30 words a minute could be typed and sent. Suddenly, businesses could now use telegraphs with ease, and many businesses in Victorian England built their own telegraphs. Members of the royal family were among the first to build their own private telegraph wires. All local papers had their own telegraph wires, and received wires from the Reuters news agency to reprint foreign news for their readers. Reuters was founded by Julius de Reuter, who was one of the first to see the advantages of the telegraph. His telegraph network was used to develop an integrated news network on top of the telegraph network, allowing for news gathering to be radically transformed from a news report about events to a continuous flow of information where time to decide and analyse the events became smaller and smaller. With the entire telegraph network being private in Britain, the large corporations had no choice but to use the telegraph networks that they were provided with, which meant the telegraph companies could start putting up prices. By 1868, and the telegraph network really was a network, with 91,000 miles of wire in Britain. From 1867, a newer Wheatstone telegraph model, the Automatic Apparatus Telegraph, was introduced. This could transmit 120 words per minute, compared to the 30 to 40 of before, by allowing for greater automation in the typing. The telegraph also had huge social consequences, as you can imagine. But not just in the speed of communication, but also in the employment of those who sent the messages. Telegraph companies were huge employers of female labour. The messages were often typed by unmarried women between the ages of 18 and 30, and overseen by an older woman called a matron. The women were employed to receive and transmit messages. Most were one of the daughters of middle-class professionals, and were one of the first respectable jobs women could do in the Victorian era. In effect, it started the now common position of women working in secretarial and bureaucratic positions. This was not always popular, with the Morning Chronicle in 1859 saying female employment was a, quote, notorious and cancerous evil in our society, close quotes. Working in a telegraph factory encouraged women because they could earn 30 shillings a week, compared to one pence a day doing needlework. Telegraphs continued to be laid across the North Sea, from Northumberland to Jutland in Denmark, and then extended through Scandinavia to allow direct communication with Russia. The cables, however, were constantly breaking in the rough North Sea. Further investment allowed the cables to be quadrupled 
to give it more strength and durability. All of this increased borrowing on the now marginal gains that these new lines brought. Telegraph companies wanted to keep their profits high, but new profit areas were slowly running out, as there was already huge capital investment. This resulted in the telegraph companies looking more and more volatile, as debts started to quickly outpace capital investments. The unreliability of the telegraph meant constant repairs were needed, which were often too expensive. The debate over the nature of the state and the telegraph started to be introduced into society. The debate started in a non-conformist magazine, the Quarterly Review, in 1854. At the time, the problem was the monopoly of the electric telegraph company, which was seen to have control over this vital national infrastructure. Later that year, Thomas Allen, a semi-famous inventor and an engineer, advocated that the post office should work the telegraph at a standardised rate across the country, in a similar way to the mail service. The campaign gradually grew and grew, with John Lewis Ricardo, nephew of the famous free market economist, who, as MP for Stoke, argued the system should be nationalised into the administration of the post office. Coming from a Member of Parliament who was also a noted capitalist with interests in the railways, it was probably a key argument that made a huge impact later on. The government thought the issue was too late in the day to allow for a post office monopoly. But in Europe, there was a push for nationalisation, as the government of Belgium pushed for an international treaty on the assumption that all international telegraphic communications gear was government-owned. Parliament's role was large even at this time, just as a regulator. And as early as 1844, the government had passed an act stating that railways could be used as telegraphs for public use. Whilst further acts restricted the maximum dividend of telegraph companies at 10%. The 1863 Telegraph Act further regulated the powers of telegraph companies to keep them more in line with regulations that were already on the statute books. But these issues of high prices kept on coming back. Telegraph companies wanted their high dividends, and so they pushed up prices. The British compared their telegraph network to across the world, and saw that Americans sent three times as many telegrams per person at vastly cheaper prices. Britain had been the leader of the telegraphic network, but the European state-led system and the entirely free market American system did look far better. One solution was to try and encourage further private competition, but the other system, of an entirely state-led system, seemed a lot more palatable. There were other proposed solutions to the ownership problem, but once the government decided a change needed to happen, a state-owned telegraph network run by a semi-independent post office was thought to be superior to an entirely private, unregulated free market system. So, of course, Parliament chose the option that gave itself more power. The post office 
promised to run the Telegraph on its own postal system, using its 12,000 stores positioned all across the country to truly connect people with where they lived and worked. And so, once everything was worked out, in February 1868, a new Chancellor introduced the Telegraph Bill of 1868 to allow the Postmaster General to acquire, maintain and work the electric telegraph. For the first time in British history, the government bought out a private company. It marked a great change in the state relations in private matters in Britain. But we can see why they thought it was necessary. It was vital to the pride and the prestige of the nation to have the best telegraphing network. But the British system had been developed so early and so privately that it was seen to be running out of control with the amount of dividends paid to shareholders, which was driving up prices. The flimsy work of much of the earlier nature of the telegraph also meant there were lots of repairs, and so it meant high prices were pushed up to compensate everywhere else. Yet this was also the capitalist way. Britain's high prices should have been allowed to continue, and some sort of competition would have followed. This is easy to say in hindsight, but perhaps is something we can learn from. We can see today what would have happened had the telegraphic companies not been privatised. Prices would have stayed high, but so would have dividends. This would have enticed a continued scramble for competition, as more money was pumped into trying to find profits in ways to get around the now private triopoly and the high prices in their telegraph markets. We know now that wireless telegraphy was only just a few decades away, and the telephone also just a couple of decades away, and so artificially high prices caused by a triopoly of the telegraphic market would have caused their own implosion. By relying on the big jubilee profits, capital could have been invested in trying to find ways around the wired system. It took until the 1910s for wireless telegraphy to really take off. But had the free market been allowed to rip up the system, it could have been private companies installing wireless telegraphy to make money at the expense of the wired telegraph triopoly. We saw in the radio episode how the wireless telegraph was slow to develop on land as there was a state monopoly and artificially low prices in the wired telegraphy areas, meaning there was not as big a profit margin for the wireless telegraphs, so prices could be cheaper. By not fostering innovation, but by regulating the system, the most primal forces of capitalism, man's jealousy and greed, and hence the free market, became altered. The railway companies were the chief opposition to the nationalisation of the telegraph. After the telegraph companies themselves, of course. The nationalisation made a requirement that the telegraph and railway industries would need to be separated, meaning they would need to double the amount of staff in some areas to deal with the same amount of work. Think of all those extra different management and workers. So in general, as governments do, it created more bureaucracy in its attempt to manipulate the market. 
The newspapers broadly supported nationalisation by the post office. With telegraph companies having their monopoly on news, newspapers had to pay higher prices than their continental peers to use the wires. So, in 1865, a group of newspapers set up the Press Association to carry their news. The post office offered no resistance to independent gathering of news, which helped to get the newspapers editorially on side. The government also offered the highest possible price on the stock exchange for the shares. Yet, the shareholders rejected this. As the government dithered about what to do, the share prices of the companies rapidly increased as a combination of the impact of the Wheatstone telegram machine and the impending government takeover prompted many to want in, buying up the weaker hands. Public opinion continued to be broadly in favour of nationalisation. So, with a majority of MPs backing it, nationalisation via the post office occurred on the 31st of July 1868, and the government added the telegraph to insurance, annuities and the postal services as state owned enterprises. The cost for the post office was a huge 6750000 to buy the telegraph triopoly. The interest for the loan paid was at 4% and cost £270,000 a year, and they estimated the telegraph run by the post office would make a profit of between £44,000 and £78,000 per annum. Charles Wheatstone, the great pioneer of the telegraph, was given just £9,200 for his rights to the patent of the ABC telegraph apparatus. The post office took over all three of the previous telegraph companies' operations and instituted a reform, meaning they would use their own postal offices as telegraph centres. Edinburgh now had three postal offices for the three different companies within half a mile of each other and none anywhere else in the city. So the post office, upon nationalisation, began to spread the telegraph into newer and growing areas. The post office also initiated the use of Morse code, and two years later, the post office had opened 1,007 new telegraph offices. In 1870, another 900 offices were opened. Meanwhile, another 1,820 railway stations had telegraphic operations opened. In the first year of the post office's nationalisation, 91% of telegraphic messages took place inside the post office, showing the convenience for the public. Messages could now be sent at a standard rate across the country, from the Channel Islands to the Orkneys, for one standard rate. It drove down the cost of all inland messages at an average of 33%. The nationalisation was chaotic but arguably successful in the short term at least. Not because the government was inherently better, but the mismanagement of the telegraphic companies previously, safe in their monopolies and focusing on high prices to give high dividends, had annoyed much of the country to the point where nationalisation could not be avoided. Today, we can see that the later innovation of the wireless telegraph would have required the wired telegraphic companies 
to modify their business models. And it would have been able to outcompete the wired companies, driving private investment into the wireless system, naturally solving the triopoly problem without government intervention. Yet, as the Crimean War and American Civil War proved, the government move was less a business ideal as it was a move into statecraft. The power of the telegraph network to move information was a crucial infrastructure, and it needed to be kept close. As Europe militarised over the 1860s, and as the later Franco-Prussian War brutally showed, the militarisation of technology and technological infrastructure was now in full effect. These wars showed that infrastructure, like railways, were as important as new ships or armaments. Railways, canals, roads, and now telegraphs were vital for war potential. Indeed, if one is analysing the trends and forces that led to the First World War, the state takeover of national infrastructure across the West around this time should not be forgotten. The competition we talked about earlier from the wireless telegraph was indeed already starting in a small way with the introduction of the telephone, which of course allowed phone calls to be made. At the same time, the postal network too was holding up well. It was still cheap, and then, as now, you could send parcels. Nationalisation resulted in more government power at the expense of the free market in the long run, but it was seen as something of a success by most people at the time. So, I won't go into it too much in this episode, for obvious reasons. But in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell patented the telephone in Philadelphia. This led to questions of whether the telephone was a telegram. The post office did try to include telephones as part of their telegraph monopoly. However, this was struck down by the House of Commons, and the post office accepted that the telephone was an independent technology. This slight grey area led to a common British trait of making money by legally abiding by the rules as they were written, but not by the spirit of the law, by finding opportunities in legal vagaries. Telephone companies began accepting telephone calls across the country and writing them down and then passing them along to the recipient. Basically, telegram messages to get around the post office's monopoly. This practice was outlawed in 1884 to protect the post office's monopoly. And so, to compete with the post office's increasing power, the three major telephone companies entered into a monopoly called the National Telephone Company in 1889. And this lack of competition in the private telephone market led to a massive competition between a private monopoly of the telephone and a state-led company of the telegram. This all led to a slower uptake of the telephone in Britain compared to much of the developed world and reflected the British government's now increasing interference in private markets. So, 
with Britain now privatising their telegraph companies, we shall leave the old world there and head to the new world, where a different approach regarding this new technology was being implemented. Many telegraphic inventions originated in the United States. Though the United States' developments in telegraphs are less interesting for their application of esoteric knowledge, and more interesting for its grand scale of application and speed of building. The rapid expansion of the United States during the 19th century was more dramatic than Britain during its Victorian era. But this development also led to the United States' telegraphic system having a much more important role than it had in Britain. Britain's telegraphic revolution mostly resulted in social change. But the United States' telegraph system was a truly revolutionary technology for the continental-sized country, as its communication lines became shrunk overnight. Britain had a next-day postal service, which, due to being half the size of California and its dense railway network, meant you could post something one day and receive it the next day anywhere in the country. Information and communications in the UK were far quicker in the pre-telegraph days than in the United States. In the United States, the telegraph cut communication lines westwards from weeks to mere minutes. America's development of the telegraph all began when Samuel C. Reed of the United States Navy and a war hero of the War of 1812 petitioned Congress to build telegraph lines between New Orleans and New York. This was picked up by Secretary of the Treasury Levi Woodbury, who was looking to develop an optical telegraph that is, using telescopes to send messages via signals in a code. However, another very important person responded to this petition, a professor and painter who wanted to use electromagnets instead to send messages. Samuel Morse claimed the invention was his own, and that electromagnetic telegraphs were cheaper and better than optical telecommunications. So, after six years of petitioning Congress, Morse got $30,000 in 1843 to build his telegraph line. The implications for the country as the telegraph expanded would be huge. Morse built a line between Washington and Baltimore from this government grant. Here we see the United States government investing large amounts of money in new technology, and it was also generally supported by all at the time. Morse's line, operated by the United States Post Office from a constitutional perspective, makes perfect sense. The Post Office was constitutionally allowed to, quote, establish post roads and post offices, close quotes. And an electrical version of this seemed to satisfy all constitutional scholars. However, the post office later sold the Washington to Baltimore line to the Magnetic Telegraph Company in 1847. This sale allowed the United States to develop a huge private telegraph industry. 
By 1846, the Telegraph had proved profitable enough to investors to start attracting large-scale private investment. Lines were built from the East Coast to the Mississippi, the Great Lakes, and then south to New Orleans, quickly changing the vast continental landscape. The country shrank as news and information could be transmitted in a mere moment. Few questioned the private enterprise model, but the American Civil War meant the model started to be challenged. This was not too dissimilar to Britain, but as Britain was sailing through the 1860s and reached its industrial, commercial, political and arguably intellectual and economic zenith, the United States had a very different experience of the 1860s, and this rapidly changed the landscape. The Telegraph was as revolutionary in American life as nowhere else. It sparked a revolution in communication across the American continent, as profound as the printing press affected the European continent. The printing press was a huge reason for the reformation at associated wars. Meanwhile, the Telegraph was a primary reason for the conflict between North and South. American society was utterly reformed along the telegraph lines. Perhaps the most major feat of the early telegraph in America was in the crossing of the Mississippi River. As white settlers petitioned Congress to start settling west of the river. In 1847, the telegraph was introduced into St. Louis, but this cable was unreliable. So important now became this cable that in 1852 it was relayed under the river. The original 1847 telegraph caused a revolution in the Midwest as quickly New Orleans and Texas became connected. In the 1860s, the telegraph moved further east to Utah and the Great Plains. The transcontinental telegraph finished in 1861, had a similar route to the Pony Express it replaced. Lines were laid over the Overland Trail, the Oregon Trail and the California Trail. Staying close to these migratory routes was the only way to ensure the lines and poles could be maintained and manned. These lines also instantly proved profitable. The Transcontinental Telegraph was built as a reaction to the war with Mexico of 1848 and the California Gold Rush. The Gold Rush was the primary reason California became a state, but communication was slow with overland communications. It was as quick to send a message in a boat to the Isthmus of Panama to carry the message overland and then ship the message back up the Pacific to California as it was to simply send it over land. You can imagine the result of this huge change in communication and its potential uses and ramifications. Like the printing press caused a revolution over the rights of princes and states versus the Catholic Church, the telegraph, from this rapidly quicker communication source, caused an associated fight over the right of the South to secede from the northern states over the issue of slavery. The Civil War proved 
what could happen with these new telegraph networks. The US military telegraph corps handled some 6.5 million messages over the war, with at its peak 8,000 miles of telegraph lines. Meanwhile, it also used another 5,000 miles of commercial lines in the south. It all proved vital to the war effort. The telegraph, in some ways, highlighted the increasingly secessionist mood in the south before war broke out. As early as 1861, southerners began not to send sensitive information through telegraphs. As the American Telegraph Company began to block and censor telegraph messages. However, it was only when Baltimore cut the wires leading northwards from Washington to Baltimore and leaving the capital without any northward communication did quite the importance of the telegraph become revealed to all. Quickly, the military started putting down lines. So, by October 1861, there were already 300 miles of military lines with 83 operators. The lines were crucial for battlefield communication, allowing the northern generals to hold frequent talks over vast areas. The system was not perfect. The United States Military Telegraph Corps served in the army, but they were classed as a civilian organisation, as it had to use commercial networks. This caused quite the confusion. Military messages were given priority over other messages of commercial origin. But the military telegraphs... The war, as you can imagine, utterly changed the telegraph industry in America. In 1857, the leading six telegraph companies in America entered into a cartel, much like they had in Britain. But with war breaking out, the government of the Union commandeered but didn't nationalise the network, relying instead on light censorship. The government put many of their officers in the Telegraph Corps to work with and in the same offices as the commercial companies. Even the commercial telegraph companies, which saw huge damage to their networks, still managed to reap 12% dividends in 1864. Very similar to the British telegraph companies who were seeking similar dividends, despite not being in a destructive war and not losing lines through fighting. It was the Western Union Telegraph Company which came out best in the war. It was doing so well during the war that executives were selling furniture and mortgaging their houses to buy up its stock. War can be very profitable if you're in the right industry. Western Union in 1863 paid a 42% dividend in cash and a stock dividend of 200%. Even Bitcoiners would be impressed by that. When the war ended, the military-built lines were sold off for nominal fees of $15 to $25 per mile, despite having cost $65 to $100 per mile to build the same lines. Profits in the telegraph companies only soared after the war, as the Atlantic line was laid. Western Union's increasing dominance of the telegraph cartel allowed it to charge even more to access the cable. Western Union's dominance 
came from having laid the first link to the Pacific coast in 1861. Built for $500,000 and having taken $460,000 in subsidies, it could charge 10 words from California to New York or Washington for $6, which allowed it to issue those huge dividends. The dominance of Western Union started as Samuel Morse's original patent ran out, allowing small companies to spring up without restriction, which Western Union's now huge cash piles could buy up. Following the war and the loosening of restrictions for telegraph companies, Western Union was in a position to start buying out the competition and to turn itself into a monopoly. America's telegraph network began to be controlled by a telegraph company that was a mere startup from upstate New York that, in a decade, had started to buy up the entire telegraph network. It was this consolidation of the most prosperous and profitable technology in America by Yankee financiers that basically started the Gilded Age in the United States as the control of the economy was rooted in a small group of people from Rochester and Cleveland. From this point, names like Cornelius Vanderbilt start to be introduced into American history. The impact of the telegraph network was huge, but the importance of the telegraph on language cannot be understated. Much like we're witnessing with the internet, language changes with technology. One aspect of the telegraph's impact was predicted in 1848 as a contributor to the United States' magazine and Democratic Review predicted that a new style of writing would result from the telegraph. More short and concise than before, this quote-unquote Yankee directness was perhaps best encapsulated by Ernest Hemingway who had started as a cable correspondent for the Toronto Star, before a literary career encapsulated by Yankee directness. This was the logical conclusion that you can make, that great literature would be impacted by a new style of communication. The telegraph could only be used with great concision, and would naturally change the use of language. This at a time when literature was dominated by novelists like Charles Dickens, who used such arcane word salad that, to my eyes at least, interferes with the very plot itself. Samuel Morse had started this tradition of concise language, with his code of using statistical distribution of letters, with, for example, the most common letter E represented by only a dot. As the telegraph started to be used, one of the more common codes was two I's, which stood for I.I. The number 73 at the end of a telegram stood for best regards, and these abbreviations leaked into personal telegrams, business correspondence, and much else. This Yankee directness was perhaps noted in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which was notably short and pointed a technique of the modern post-telegraph world, not of Dickensian literature. Over time, 
there was a competition inside the telegram companies about whether to focus on speed and introduce a faster service at a higher price or to roll out more infrastructure to enable cheaper communication for all. The latter won out and the telegraph companies prospered with renewed government enthusiasm for a private system and new innovations like the quadruplex invented by Thomas Edison in 1875 enabling four messages to be sent on the same board. The private telegraph industry in America took over as the central location for communication innovation from Britain. Developments in America meant that rates were halved at the same time as doubling the quantity of the message. Vastly better services were seen by all at no extra cost and no reduced profits for telegraph companies. Most people in the United States didn't directly use a telegraph, with 70% of traffic in the early 1850s being commercial and only 10% personal. In 1887, the president of the Western Union, Norrin Green, said that less than 2% of Americans ever used a telegraph. The impact on the new service by the telegram is perhaps most exemplified by the United States. And although we covered it in the media episode, we are going to have a quick go over again. People saw before their eyes how the news was changing as everything became reported in real time. The American Civil War, for example, was reported across the country the next day. The assassination of President James Garfield saw crowds waiting in the streets nearest the closest telegraph office awaiting news. News magnates saw how much people demanded up-to-date news and demanded constant news in a psychological way not seen before. In decades previously, news had come from churches, coffee houses, merchants and just people in the street. Now, news gathering became less a personal thing and more mass market. Hotels provided free news bulletins on their doors to draw people into their bars and restaurants. The Telegraph allowed the United States to become more centralised. As we mentioned before, the speed of travel in England and the UK, due to its small size, was almost unparalleled for any advanced, moderately large country. And so the United Kingdom's internal market was noticeably bigger and more integrated than any other major country. But the Telegraph allowed centralization of information in the Northeast, the United States' traditional capital powerhouse. Add that to the ownership of the Telegraph industry, and we can start to see the beginning of Yankee centralization over the United States. The early 1880s saw the stock exchange in New York hooked up to all the telegraphs and telephone wires. In 1867, Edward Callahan had invented the stock ticker to show real-time financial information, connected by telegraph. This innovation was placed in hotels, saloons, and of course in banks, to show anybody who might want to know what the exact stock market looked like. The telegraph changed the fundamental nature of markets. Before 
trades were only made at 10.30am and 1pm, when shares were given to the president who then auctioned them off to the highest seller. Now, shares were traded continuously and from distance. The telegraph was also something of a leveller, stopping the practice of gambling over the nature and speculation of commodity prices, as now information became readily available to all. So now we've got to about the same place in the story of both Britain's and the United States' development with telegraphy. In the two countries, innovations once again proved a more fundamental force than governments or corporations. Western Union's monopoly, driven in large by the free market's natural centralisation, saw its monopoly threatened by the very thing that caused it, the free market. Firstly, in the form of the telephone. The standard story of the telephone in Western Union is that Alexander Graham Bell patented the telephone in 1876, and later that year, or perhaps early the next year, the Western Union's president, William Orton, turned down an offer from Bell of $100,000 to buy up the patent. And then, later in 1876, he saw the error of his ways and tried to buy it again. Whilst this would be one of the largest business mistakes in history, akin to Decker turning down the Beatles, Yahoo not buying Google, or anything Alan Sugar has ever done, it is perhaps too good of a story in this instance. There is no evidence Western Union ever receives an offer from Bell. Various accounts said that Western Union had heard Bell might sell it for $100,000, or that Bell had offered them shares of the telephone patent, but not quite as bad as it sounds. At the same time, Western Union had been researching a speaking telegraph in-house, and so were probably happy that Bell had taken the first mover advantage assuming they would be naturally able to outcompete him with their own infrastructure. Western Union also had Thomas Edison on retainer to help try and develop the speaking telegraph, whilst there were other inventors out there looking into it, like Alicia Gray. Bell decided to go alone, which resulted in Western Union wanting to go alone too. Western Union spent the next couple of years developing a new infrastructure and, perhaps, a better telephone than Bell. But the Bell telephone went out. How? Well, Bell offered to pay exchanges 25% commission, whereas Western Union offered only 10%. Perhaps Western Union didn't want to muscle Bell out of the business, but soften him up for a buyout. But when Bell took Western Union to court over a patent dispute in 1879, narrowly winning the case, Western Union did an about-face in 1879 and offered to settle with Bell for only 20% of the telephone company. Western Union probably came to the conclusion that Bell and themselves held exclusive and different patents over different areas of the telephone business and neither could operate without the other. Western Union settled, but began a constant dispute with Bell 
in claiming Western Union were rolling out a slower network than he wanted. He argued they were trying to keep the profits in the telegraph arm of the company. Slowly, however, the telephone arm of Western Union outgrew the telegraph arm, and Bell began to slowly take over Western Union. The telegraph naturally declined after the introduction of the telephone, which again pretty much changed all communication across America. Slowly, Western Union was dismantled, and its telegraph monopoly broken up. Over time, the telegraph industry became so defeatist that it didn't even bother trying to invest in itself. It could have continued to make profits well into the 20th century by introducing better technology to increase capacity. Western Union slowly receded in the United States as a communications force over the 20th century, relying more on its money transfer business instead of communication. In the final move of a dying empire, and as an attempt to counterweight AT&T's telecommunications monopoly, Western Union launched a satellite in 1984 to try and develop a new industry. But this satellite was unfortunately lost shortly after launch. It cost $75 million and could have generated $500 million with its launch, to say nothing of what future launches could have done. The launch failure proved fatal to Western Union. It was up to its eyes in debt, and by 1985, banks refused to issue it new credit, meaning it effectively became a zombie firm. Western Union sold everything other than its money transfer business by 1990, and in 1994, everything else, including the brand, was sold to the First Data Corporation. In 2006, Western Union sent a telegram for the final time. The last telegram was the final nail in the coffin of the company that best represented the telegraph. While telephones, then fax, email and social media was why the telegram died, Western Union could have survived. Had they better invested their huge gains in the new industries, it could have led more communications revolutions, enabling a far quicker and faster development in communication. It could have foreseen the revolution that was the internet and encouraged and developed it at a far quicker rate. It could have led the commercialization of space with satellite launches and led the field in space communications. But in the end, it was the story of corporate greed and euphoria at huge profits rather than reinvestment. The same story happened in Britain. The telephone did take over everything. The telephone had been heard about from the Philadelphia exhibition and Bell quickly began negotiations with the post office. Bell's London representatives and the post office came to a settlement to buy the telephone for use on its own wires. However, Edison quickly managed to get involved in the British market. And at the same time, a Lancashire telephone exchange was established to connect Manchester and the other towns. With the post office's monopoly over the telegraph being extended in a court case in 1880, 
It meant all communications needed to be kept on the post office's lines. There was nothing to stop the post office setting up a telephone exchange, but they were happy to accept royalties for just carrying the telephone business. And in some ways, this is probably, on balance, the best justification for the overall monopolisation of the telegraph lines in Britain. They were treated as infrastructure, not as a government moneymaker. So what this episode has almost all been about is whether you think the British or American model was better, and whether it was better for the state definitively to interfere in private markets or not. Both countries saw new developments and new innovations in their respective models. The United States was quicker to the invention that was the telephone, but Britain was quicker to wireless technology. The telegraph industry was a revolution in America, though in some ways it caused as many issues as it solved. Like most technologies, including social media and the internet more broadly, it increased our ability to access more information and more quickly. But like the forbidden fruit, it might taste good, but there are always huge repercussions for a bite. The fibre optic cable is the modern telegraph. It carries information just like before, just now with more capacity. Now the fibre optic cables are interfaced with computers rather than simply paper. The internet is the telegraph hypercharged. This is where electrical communication started. The telegraph could be perhaps described as the forgotten invention. We've gone over it a little in this episode. It might not have been universal in the same way as the telephone or the smartphone would be, but for matters of state and business and the media, the telegraph changed the world. It enabled a speed of communication that for the first time could go quicker than man. In previous centuries, it was only the Pony Express or the mail service that could provide quick, reliable communications and it could only travel as quickly as man, either by horse, boat, or on foot. With the railways, communication sped up, but so did human travelling. The telegraph, I think, should be better remembered. And that's kind of the point of this series, to bring attention not only to the more famous technological inventions that might not be fully understood, but also to bring attention to the forgotten ones. And so for that reason, The Telegraph is listed at number 55 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.